Welcome to a new episode of our Hardware X podcast. Our guest today is Peter Marchetto, research engineer and instrumentation scientist with Conservify and principal at Sensing LLC. His research interests lie in environmental sensing and creating tools for those in life sciences who need them. Some of these projects have included applying automated imaging and high throughput measurement techniques. Dr. Marchetto has published a number of papers in Hardware X. So let's just get right to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Marchetto, for coming to our show, and congratulations on all your publications that are so relevant and applicable to precision and sustainable farming. So to start with, were you always interested in agricultural and biosystems technologies? Well, I've got an interesting background with that because I've been a tool builder since very early on in my career. Well, before I even got out of college, I was doing academic research on looking at instrumentation from a biomedical perspective. So working on like ophthalmological instruments. And I realized there's a lot of people doing that in the engineering world. So where is it in like the life sciences and such where people don't have the skills necessarily trained into them to make their own tools? And Mm -hmm. I landed on organismal, environmental, and agricultural life sciences. So yeah, as a tool builder, this is kind of a ripe environment to happen into and be like, oh, well, my background's partially in physics and partially in environmental engineering. So, and the environmental engineering angle has always been instrumentation for environmental measurement. So yeah, it's been something where it's kind of evolved into being my primary area of focus, but primarily because I've always wanted to make tools for people. What do you think are the technology drivers today for precision agriculture or environmental systems? I think that there's a number of different drivers. There's a lot of people who are focused on these extremely expensive uh, systems. Like the thing is, if you make something really expensive, even if it's really high quality, you don't get the spatial or temporal diversity that you need to really make up a good data set. So where I think things are going is as we become slightly less precise, but a lot less expensive in precision ag sensing systems, then we're going to know what's going on out in our fields much better. So if you make something so there's a lower barrier to entry and some farmer can put together an open source system to monitor, say, weather out in their fields, then that's going to be a heck of a lot better than having like one ag research station that has the top of the line Uh, weather instruments, and nobody else has anything. I think similarly that when you're talking about like precision ag robotics, then it's reaction to that. So I think that sensing is going to continue driving things and that control systems beyond that to actually do everything from smart irrigation to having robots do planting, if that's what you want to do, all of that will follow on from the capabilities of increasing the resolution of sensors, both spatially and parameter-wise. Right. So what you're saying is cost is definitely... Uh, it's a driver. It's, it's a driver to entice a wider user base, for example. Yep. And do you think open source hardware and open source technologies have a definite role in that regard? Open source is the only way to go to make things actually sustainable rather than having to junk a tractor when it expires. And... Number two in this is the fact that farmers are some of the most innovative, quote unquote, amateur engineers you will ever find. As a farmer, you have to be a generalist. You have to be an electrician. You have to be a plumber. You have to be an agronomist and a car mechanic and all of these things all at the same time. 
these are some intensely smart people and they've been overcoming obstacles as a family tradition in a lot of cases for generations. So the idea of larger companies making things more expensive, making them harder to work with and locking people out of their maintenance, I think is counter to any sort of sustainable progress for farming, at least in the U.S. So how do you think the space is within U.S. compared to Europe or other continents? I would say that to some extent, it's a matter of that our farm policy in the U.S. is a little bit more screwed up than elsewhere. And so we give subsidies to a lot of folks who are doing monocropping, which, I mean, they have to do monocropping in order to be profitable enough. The thing is that by creating subsidies for certain things, like, for example, we're going to subsidize you to be yourself a subsidiary of a larger ag company and work on their behalf on what's supposedly your own land. I think that system is fundamentally more broken here than it is elsewhere. I think that also that system is so close to breaking insofar as how it works right now that that's part of the reason that you're seeing over the last 10, 15 years a major resurgence in small farms in areas where monocropping isn't possible. And where I think the opportunity lies is actually in creating smaller open source technologies that those farmers can use across a broader range of species without having to do monocropping. I don't think that the future of ag lies in the traditional Midwest corn and soybean system. I think it lies elsewhere. Okay. So coming back to the next question, you are in a rare situation as a researcher who transitioned out of academia. You are still working on cutting edge research and environmental sensing. So could you tell me how you do that? Um, by being extremely lucky. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the first part. So I already had some connections in the ag field and in the environmental monitoring field. Then by sheer chance, I happened to talk to Shah Selby at Conservify. Shah and his team are putting together this open source data logger system called FieldKit. And they actually won the Hackaday Prize, I think it was in 2018 for this thing. So I start doing some consulting work for them, basically just doing market survey research and trying to tell them, okay, well, these are the different sensor modalities that you want to develop in order so that you can actually penetrate into the data logger market. And eventually Shah came back to me and said, well, listen, I, I know you did a limited time consulting for us. Would you like to work for us part-time? And would you like to work for us part-time? Eventually turned to, would you like to work for us full-time? Okay. So now my day-to-day -day is solving problems on um, new modalities for FieldKit. So right now we've got everything from pH to dissolved oxygen for water. We've got a standard weather station, a distance sensor that we're using for like stream gauging. Moving on to your papers that you have published with Hardware X, could you sure. tell me the motivation behind your sound recorder to measure the activity of movement of free-moving small animals? I got the motivation actually due to one of my students. So I was teaching a, a course on environmental and biological sensing. Okay. And one of the students there um, happened to be working in a lab that is working on frog calls. And okay. so she's trying to figure out how frogs attract one another's attention. She's right. one of my co-authors, in fact, on this paper. And so the problem that we ran into was you're talking about tr gray tree frogs. 
they get a population of them up from a, a single source in Texas. And these frogs are literally shipped on ice. The females have a total mating season of three days. And during those three days of the entire year, that's when they're mm -hmm. actually acoustically active, looking for where the sounds are coming from. In this case, the sounds of males calling them. So problem is that you have these frogs and you have about 72 hours in which to characterize their response to various different male frog calls. So <laughs> what we wound up talking about was, well, is there a way that we could, you know, maybe automate this or somehow make it better than what they've been doing so far. What they originally had was they had a little cage over the froggy inside of a 12 foot by 12 foot soundproof room. Mm -hmm. And then they'd have one or two speakers in front of the frog. They'd have the room entirely dark and they'd have a night vision camera focused on the frog. And the problem was they took at least as long to reset for the next frog as it took to do the test on the one frog that they had in there. Yeah, you can see that how this could be ripe for automation. So Mark B, who's the guy who runs that lab, the frog lab at UMN, mm -hmm. happened to have this four up set of soundproof boxes that were originally mm -hmm. designed or originally used for recording birdsong. He's like, well, maybe we could do something with these and the frogs. And Samya Gupta, who's the, uh, the grad student who was running this project really, she was like, well, is there some way that I could measure the movement of the frog or measure the attempted movement of the frog without making the frog jump around? Mm -hmm. And so what we came up with was the croak, where it's literally just a nine degree of freedom IMU on the bottom of a small plastic cage. Frog gets mm -hmm. put inside of the cage and a couple of pieces are fastened around there. The whole cage is suspended from a little hanger from springs so it can move relatively freely. And then you have one or more speakers around the periphery of where that sits within that soundproof box. So we made it so that the cage could be on a piece of plywood that we used as a tray. And the IMU, uh, because it's just an I2C device, we only mm -hmm. need four wires to connect to it. So mm -hmm. we have a little jack at the back where we slide the tray in. It couples to the jack. You mm -hmm. close the door, do your playback experiments. Uh, we also had a wise cam uh, because those are like, I think, 20 bucks a piece nowadays yes. in their night vision mode. So we could keep an eye on the frog. And so you do your playback. You take the tray out. You put it back on the rack. You get another tray with a, that's prepped with another frog. Put it in there. And now you've got a 20 minute long session with like two minute change out time as mm -hmm. compared to a 20 minute long session with a half an hour change out time. So. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's what that was the idea was let's let's monitor what the motion is. So froggy moves within the cage. You see mm -hmm. a difference in the a vector because now all of a sudden the cage is at a slightly different alignment. And insofar as how much energy they put into moving, that's going to show up in the gyro as well, because that's going to go through your angular velocity and you're going to get the energy back out of that. Yeah. So, so that's, that was that's pretty cool. The, so uh, do you think the frog is smart enough to figure out it's a playback and it's not from a live frog? <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as to say smart enough or not smart enough because actually, so part of my background is in designing equipment for bioacoustics. And the thing is that saying it's smart enough or not smart enough is like saying, okay, well, I'm going to have like an Amazon Alexa 
speak to somebody who's never heard a computer uh, generated voice before. It's not a matter of whether or not they're smart. It's a matter of whether or not they know that certain cadences are due to automated composition rather than being due to just natural speech. So detecting those pauses and such, that's something that you learn over time. So I wouldn't put it against, I wouldn't hold it against the frog for mistaking a Mm -hmm. well-constructed artificial stimulus for an actual frog call. Let me put it that way. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to sorry to say that I, I don't come down on saying if the frogs are smart or not, but I would <laughs> say that it's actually more on the experimenter and whether or not they've constructed something that's sufficiently biomimetic. Right, yeah. The Samuel was actually to... very good at that, so. Okay, so you had another paper that talked about a force meter to measure the stock strength of crop plants. Uh, yes, the like stalker. wheat and corn. Yeah, interestingly, you call it the stalker. So, And, and the paper showed like uh, you did the testing with four different cereal grains with mm-hmm. different management strategies. For me, the interesting part was the scale of the tests that were done. So was that easy or was that trivial or was it very difficult? It always comes down to how much field staff you have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... Um, that was part of a project that we did up here with the with the funding coming from mainly the Minnesota Department of Agriculture's Rapid Response Fund. Okay. And it was run by Kevin Smith at UMN, and Kevin named it Stems of Steel. Pretty good name, I'd say. It's memorable <laughs> enough, yes, for sure. Yes. So um, I was primarily working with a postdoc in that project uh, by the name of Joe Hoishley, and Joe's now over at USDA here. But what we came up with was actually a network of different parameters that we would need to measure in order to characterize the entirety of how the plant behaved within the context of the system that it was in in the field. What we were doing was we had, uh, the stalker was only one of several different projects that we had in my lab at that time uh, for this overall program of research. Okay. Um, And so we actually wound up with a number of systems that um, some of them got published actually in Hardware X, like the Stalker and also the automated camera track system that I'm also an author on. The camera track system was to monitor how small grains would blow over during a storm. And the entire point of Stems of Steel was selective breeding so that we could breed small grains that were resistant to wind and storm damage, logic, as it's known. So the stalker was a way of characterizing stem strength in a non-destructive fashion. It was not purely my invention. It was just an improvement, an innovation on an invention that had already been made. They'd originally had a stalk strength meter that similarly you held part of it down on the ground at a hinge point. You press forward and there's a little bar hooked up to a load cell and you read out from a load sensor, one of those Omega ones that's powered by two giant lead acid batteries that you carry around in a fanny pack uh, (laughs) what the amount of load would be but you have to be really precise about like trying to push it to exactly 45 degrees the problem that i realized uh was inherent in that was that you were actually losing an opportunity for getting a lot more data so the stalker is basically a bar with a load cell behind it and then also an accelerometer above it so that we can get what angle we're pushing to. If we know what our height is, then we also know what our displacement along that arc is. And Mm. so I can create a hysteresis graph of angle versus force. So pushing, I get one portion of 
that that goes up and then coming back i see that there's a gap between the upper and lower portions of this graph that gap is the deposited energy and therefore how much the stalk is actually damaged by that right, pushing right so that's the, that's the whole deal with the stalker is let's okay. see what that does and what we found was that when we did this to a large number of different plants it actually turned out to be predictive of how they'd respond to an actual lodging event so if you wound up with a small hysteresis band then you've got something that would return prey normally and mm -hmm. you don't have much energy storage so you don't have much lodging uh, capability. If you wind up with a large hysteresis band, you abandon that particular um, strain that you've been evaluating and you focus on one of the ones with a smaller hysteresis. Okay. So it's a non-destructive way of getting data about how that particular uh, variety or strain of, uh, well, let's see, we were doing wheat, um, barley, uh, well, two, two and six row barley and oats okay. at that time. Okay. And so for all of them, it turned out that we could basically say early in the season whether or not it would actually lodge later in the season when the thunderstorm started coming through and blowing things over. Okay. So I was curious, among all these four cereal grains, which one has the best stock strength? It's actually different based on what the environmental conditions are. There's been anecdotal evidence actually from oat farmers for a very long time that if you happen to have oats on a field with high winds, that they grow stronger due to that. Uh, with wheat, we found that there was some actual stem fracture that occurred at some later stages. Um, with barley, you also have the fact that the panicle is so darn large, especially on six row barley, that you mm -hmm. have a large amount of aerodynamic drag. And so there's a lot of force on it. Mm -hmm. So even though it's got a pretty strong stem, it actually has to withstand more force than the others do just because of the panicle cross-sectional area. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we went we went really into the weeds on this one. Okay, okay. You're getting a lot of readership from your publications in Hardware X. Could you tell me about your experience publishing with Hardware X and where do you have any suggestions for the journal? My experience publishing with Hardware X has been the least painful of all of the publishing experiences I've had. Okay, I've, great. <laughs> I've tried to publish in like journals from um, the American Society of agricultural and biological engineers, ASABE. Yes. And ASABE gave me a rejection after 18 months for one paper without like any review or anything like that. 18 months later, I got feedback and it's like, oh, sorry, nope, not within the scope of our journal. I'm like, this is yeah. environmental sensing and it's right up your street. They're like, no, we don't want it. Yeah. So by comparison, HardwareX has been a pleasure to work with. The other thing that, that's been interesting is it was one of the first journals I've ever seen that actually had a requirement for having your data and designs available openly online on a separate site. I think if I remember correctly, there was, so when I had originally done it in, it was that you had to freeze the repo through Zenodo, I think it was, so that you could issue the DOI. That was a pretty good compromise at that point in time, especially because then that allows you to do the, um, the continued development. Yes, that is still there. So there is Mendeley data, there is Zenoto, and there is, uh, I think there's one more. Okay, I think we had almost an hour long discussion. So thank you so much for coming to our show. And it was so wonderful talking to you. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Thank you.